Hey everyone, and welcome to the 2021's very first episode of the Scientist Podcast. Today I'm joined by a serious all-rounder. She's, uh, amongst other things, epidemiologist, a microbiologist with a particular interest in the interaction between food, epigenetics, and disease. With no further ado, here is Dr. Emma Beckett. Emma, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me. So you're in Australia at the minute, and you guys, and I say this with an epidemiological slant, if I can ever pronounce the thing, you guys are doing okay at the moment with the coronavirus. We are doing okay. I think we have been lucky. I think if a few things were different early on, we could be in a very different situation. But we were one of the countries that very early put in the quarantine for international arrivals and international returning Australians. And I think that made a very big difference in terms of catching outbreaks early, which also prevented us from normalising it in our mind. I think that the US and potentially the UK right now are in a situation where COVID and this infection is the new normal, whereas it's still quite scary here and very few people have actually been exposed to someone who's got it or someone who knows someone who's got it. Whoa, seriously. Because over here, I mean, I've had it and it's kind of like, oh, wow. Like my first thought is, well, you don't want to infect anyone. There's no stigma really. And there's no, <gasps> as there was at the start, you know, in March, I sort of had a friend who had it quite early and there was sort of whispers. It was like, oh my God, have they, have they got the COVID? It's interesting, in epidemiology, and I promise I'll at some point learn how to pronounce it, is the role of fear important when it comes to spreading patterns? I mean, I would teach you how to say it, but then I'd teach you in an Australian accent and that's probably not <laughs> going to serve you well. But yeah, fear does play a role and compliance plays a role as well. So there's been a lot of debate here about at what point do you make mask wearing compulsory? And there's different kinds of attitudes and politics around it. But something we really do need to keep in mind is that if you put the restrictions on too early, people can get this compliance fatigue and fear fatigue, and then they stop taking it seriously. So you do need to balance that fear with the actual biological transmission and how you control it. And when you look at countries that have done really well, so I'm thinking New Zealand to a lesser degree, but still very much so Australia and China, although China's maybe a slightly dodgy case in terms of data being reported. Are there common threads amongst what they've done? So both New Zealand and Australia went early on the international arrival quarantine, which definitely helped reduce that first wave and really changed the attitude to the second waves. New Zealand has gone very hard, very fast, wherever it's found cases. So as soon as one single case has popped up in a city, they've gone into a lockdown kind of situation and reduced movement in and out of that city and around that city. And so that's really captured it very quickly. And as soon as you let it get out of one of those little bubbles like that, that's when it becomes a much bigger deal to do lockdown. So New Zealand's done that very well. Victoria crushed their second wave in Australia. One of our most populous states crushed their second wave by doing a very hectic lockdown. But now they're down to, you know, single digit cases for the last couple of weeks. And is the role of population important here? Because I have an idea in New Zealand, you know, they had the slogan that I really liked of we're a team of 5 million. But beyond it just being easier to imagine you being in a team, it's also easier presumably to manage a country of 5 million. Is that right? Could the UK have done the same thing? 
It's absolutely easier to manage a smaller country. And New Zealanders do have that community spirit very much built in. And that was really drilled in in their response. Obviously, the larger the population you get, the more difficult it's going to become. And generally, a larger population is crammed into a smaller space. So that just adds challenges. So Australia, we're very lucky. Our major cities are geographically separated and we've got big space of low levels of population in between. So that means you can limit movement. So one of the strategies here has been closing borders between our states. And you can't do that in a country the size of yours with the amount of people who live there. Now that everyone is an expert on infectious diseases, have you spent a lot more time on Twitter correcting people than you might have a year ago when it comes to this type of thing? I try not to get involved in it too much because there's people who are much closer to the situation than me. So yes, one of my degrees is in epidemiology and yes, I use epidemiology in my research all the time, but I haven't been, you know, practicing in infectious disease epidemiology for many years now. And I really don't like to get involved in the slinging matches that go on on Twitter surrounding this topic. (laughs) But what's been really interesting is most people on Twitter know me for my nutrition science and my food science. And I've had a lot of people shutting me down saying, what would you know you're not an epidemiologist and I've had to say well actually that is one of my five degrees so I kind of do know what I'm talking about here. The bang it's one of my five degrees cards must be a fun one to play. Well I mean they're in my bio and my pinned tweet so people could find out if they had a quick look. What are they I have to ask? So my first degree was in biomedical science and that's where I did my honours year in immunology and microbiology. Then I did a graduate diploma in clinical epidemiology majoring in molecular epidemiology Then I did my master's in science management, a graduate certificate in human nutrition and a PhD in food science. I mean, that is not just five degrees. It's five degrees with a PhD too. That's two degrees, right? I mean, I'm a bit of a nerd. I like learning. Yeah, I think the five degrees and the liking learning checks out. I want to ask about the food science to leave coronavirus aside. So you've written that we all eat food and we all eat genes and we all have a microbiome. But it's a matter of figuring out how our different unique combinations interact to mean that some of us stay healthy while others become unwell. Is the idea that eating certain foods can interact with my epigenetics, say, to make me ill, but yours and you'll be just fine? Yeah, basically. So often we focus in nutrition science and food science on the middle part of the standard curve and what happens to most people or what happens to the average person. But we know that there's some people who can do the right thing when we give them an intervention or we give them the population recommendations. They can do the right thing and still end up with the condition or the disease or the biomarker that we're interested in. Mm. So I'm really interested in those people, why they don't respond in the same way and how we can approach their situations differently so that we can level the playing field for everyone and everyone can have a good chance at being able to eat the diet that suits their body and gives them the best chance at a good outcome. Because otherwise what you're doing is you're giving the middle of the bell curve recommendation to someone on one end of the bell curve and therefore it doesn't work. Yeah, so our general recommendations are all quite generous so that we capture a large part of that bell curve. But yes, it is around the centre of the bell curve and there's people at either end who will need more or need less or have different chances of getting diseases that are associated with those factors. Very cool. So just to back up for a second, let's just chat about epigenetics in a non-diet context to start. I've got a vague idea that epigenetics refers to like changing genetics over the course of your lifetime. What is it actually? 
So epigenetics means above the genome. The epi is for above. And basically what happens with epigenetics is you get changes to the DNA that are kind of on top of the DNA that changes the way the genes get read, expressed, used, switch on and off in the body. So your DNA stays the same. It's not like getting a mutation and your genes are changing, but the way the cellular machinery can access them to make them into proteins and the functional things in our body, that changes based on what's been added to them. Okay, so this was crazy for me to read. Can you tell everyone how you got into epigenetics? Well, I'm interested in epigenetics because I'm a twin. I'm an identical twin. So I have my own molecular clone walking around. We have the same DNA, but we're clearly different people. And I also have nine brothers and sisters. So I was very interested in genetics and the differences that occur in people because of genetics really before I even knew what it meant, because I'd seen these differences in my brothers and sisters and me and my twin sister. And, you know, really, I just want to race her to the best old age. That sentence got crazier and crazier the longer it went. (laughs) I tend to do that. (laughs) Are you one of 10? Yes. So your combined siblings and degrees number is 15 (laughs) at a ratio of one to two. Yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, that's your Twitter bio. (laughs) That's unbelievable. Okay, so you have an identical twin and you was like, hang on, one of the big variables that's changing here is our epigenetics. So therefore, maybe diet has something to do with it. Was that kind of the trajectory? Yeah, well, I thought about diet specifically because I had been a vegetarian for most of my adult life. So I became a vegetarian when I was 14, 15, and my twin sister didn't. And then, you know, different things happened to us as we got older. I um, had a tumor and had to have half of my thyroid taken out. She didn't. I thought about how those things interacted. And I was working in immunology and microbiology because that is the sexiest of the biomedical science fields. And I really switched to nutrition when I realized that that is how you reach the most people. And I went down the epigenetics path because I'd really been thinking for a long time, even before I knew what the words were those differences in me and my twin sister. When I first read about nutritional epigenetics, I was like, I had this idea, but I didn't know what any of these words were or how to explain it or describe it to anyone. So now I'm doing what I was really thinking about all along. Yeah. So finally there was a language to it. Absolutely. You know, it's like when you read a book and an idea that you've thought a little bit about, but you've never seen articulated comes out and you're like, yes, that's exactly the thing. And that's one of the really exciting parts about science. And then figuring out how you can use that to do good things and help people makes it even more amazing. So in practical terms, where does the field or the interaction rather between nutrition and epigenetics lead? Does it lead to kind of people who aren't in the middle of the bell curve having better life outcomes? What's the end game if that's not terribly reductionist? So long-term, that would be the aim to be able to have personalized recommendations. So in addition to definitely not saying we should ever get rid of the general guidelines or recommendations, but we could have recommendations for people who knew they had particular versions of genes or had particular responses to genes, and we could use that to give them their own recommendations. So if someone came from a family with a history of colorectal cancer, for example, if we could have a diet where we said, you've got this family history, you can reduce your risk if you do X, Y, Z, above and beyond the reduce your red meat and eat more fiber that we already tell people with those kinds of histories, that would be fabulous. And imagine doing that with all kinds of diet-related diseases. 
we could really reduce the burden of disease. But it's also about looking at how we can use nutrients for treatments as well. So my PhD research, for example, was looking at folate and vitamin D and how they changed epigenetic marks on particular cells. And we know that vitamin D is reducing risk of some cancers, but we don't really know how. And if we can figure out the how with the epigenetics and the genetics and everything else and loop it back together, that's where we can start incorporating nutrients and nutritional therapy into treating or preventing those diseases. Right, because the epi, the above the genetics, the way the genes are accessed would change because of the nutrition. Absolutely, yes. Do you have some vague sense, you know, some populations seem to be much more resistant to COVID than others demographically. Is that an epigenetic thing, do you imagine? It might be a genetic thing. So it could very possibly have roots in the different receptors that the virus attaches to. So we've had a lot of research on different disease groups being at different risk of COVID and talk of different forms of receptors or functionality of receptors. And with everything, whether it's immune receptors, immunotypes, metabolism genes, we see different patterns in those across populations because they've come at different frequencies in different populations based on a natural selection throughout history. We can't always put our finger on what those differences are, but we definitely do often see differences between populations. And I've seen some studies that I'm not sure how they're going to stack up in the long term on things like blood type mm. and risk of COVID and whether that's got something to do with the way these receptors are interacting is the real question. To kind of tie in the COVID and the epigenetics... Obviously, COVID affects some people tragically and drastically, and other people are asymptomatic. And you can explain some proportion of that with the main risk factors, age, weight, etc. But is there something genetic happening or epigenetic as an alternative that might explain the difference? This is going to sound really awful, but I really look forward to that being unraveled. So we know that there's these people who not just get the worst form of COVID and the disease itself, but they get this long COVID. And even after the actual respiratory illness is, is gone, they're still getting these circulatory symptoms. So figuring out what's going on there is probably going to involve epigenetics because epigenetics are part of switching the different DNA on and off. So if we're seeing different populations of immune immune cells, there'll be different epigenetic patterns on those immune cells that'll be dictating how they behave. And all of that's definitely going to come together. There's no way epigenetics won't be involved. The question is really, can we figure it out in time for it to be useful and help the people who are suffering from this long COVID? Mm, because obviously, as vaccines increasingly get rolled out, we're hoping that COVID becomes something that affects a smaller and smaller percentage of people. Would having a vaccine or some level of immune response fight against long COVID. You know, right, so at the minute in the UK, the first jab is being given out. Now, the first jab doesn't give you total immunity, but it gives you good immunity. Is there any suggestion that something that's more severe, like long COVID, to the degree that it is more severe rather than just a totally different thing altogether, you'd have immunity to after a jab? I don't know. That is a very good question. And I guess with the rapid way in which these vaccines have been developed, we probably haven't had a chance to look at that yet. So I guess the ultimate aim is reduce risk of infection and whether that has a knock-on effect mm. to the rates of long COVID or whether it has an effect on people who have already experienced the long COVID. Uh, I think that probably remains to be seen. The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated, leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. 
If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. Can you just contextualise for everyone who doesn't necessarily have a sense of like how long a vaccine tends to take to produce, just how quick we've gone here? So to go from start of pandemic to rolling out a vaccine in a year, essentially, is quite phenomenal. Think about something like HIV. We still don't have a vaccine for it. And we've been working on that for a very long time. So it is quite impressive. But I think what people need to remember in the background is that coronaviruses themselves have been around for a very long time. And so people have been working on vaccines for other coronaviruses for quite a long time and probably just haven't had the impetus for the governments to give them the funding to get those over the line. The whole body of research around the molecular tools and machinery that go into making these vaccines have been developed for other diseases over this time. So it's a really good example of taking lots of different tools and lots of different things scientists have been working on not knowing that there would be a pandemic they would need to solve and put them all together under pressure and in a short time frame. And it's amazing what we can do when we give scientists money. Well, I was going to say, I mean, one thing that's happened is you've had the biggest incentive ever to do anything, basically, because every economy in the world is going to be in a deep, dark recession unless we get a vaccine running. I have to ask you about epidemiology, given that you have a degree in it. Before a global pandemic strikes, what's the appeal of it as a degree? Because now it's unbelievably cool. And now I kind of see the appeal. But when we haven't had a pandemic, at least of this scale since 1919 or whatever it is, is it just that the science is really juicy? What's the kick? Well, I guess everyone has become interested in epidemiology with the pandemic and everyone knows what the word means now more or less because of the pandemic. But we're not just interested in large-scale infections in epidemiology. Epidemiology is really about studying diseases in populations. So it's all about looking at risk factors and it's about looking at how diseases move, infectious diseases move, or how non-infectious diseases appear in different populations. So it's all about disease patterns in populations rather than disease in an individual. So I never wanted to be a a medical doctor because I was terrified that if I worked on a single person and got it wrong, I would, you know, kill them or affect their life adversely. But working in populations and seeing what the risk factors are or where things are occurring, how they're occurring is part of helping lots of people where I don't actually have the risk of damaging any one of them individually. No, right, exactly. That's the thing about public health, right? In some ways, the potential to do good is on a greater scale without the individual looking at someone and thinking, I've not done brilliantly there, risk. Which sounds very selfish, but definitely was my motivation. <laughs> no, I think I think psychologically that is an immensely sensible motivation. I have to mention it. You won the visiting fellowship at the National Institute of Health in America. How was all of that for you? Oh gosh, that blew my mind. I 100% applied for that visiting fellowship for the experience of doing an application. So to apply, you need to have an agreed project with an agreed supervisor at a National Institutes of Health laboratory. And I thought I need to get out of my comfort zone. So I'm going to make that phone call, send that email and ask people. And I thought that's the experience I was getting doing the application. And then I got it and I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to actually have to move to America for a few months now. I hadn't mentally prepared myself for that. But really the real benefit of it, other than, you know, the actual science I did while I was there and the networks that I made, it really taught me that 
those labs that we look up to as the gold standards, like the National Institutes of Health, they're really just like every other lab I've worked in. And they have the same challenges and they have the same dreams and they have the same goals and the same kind of people. So it really taught me that science is the same wherever you go. And that to me was quite motivating in moving forward with my own career. That is a liberating thing. It's just that they've got a shiny badge. I know you say it's the same everywhere in terms of the science, but was science culturally different in Australia versus the States? Funding systems work a little bit differently and the way people progress through their careers is a little bit different. But ultimately, it really is, you know, quite similar in terms of the people and the way the people approach the science and and what their commitments are. On a totally different topic, what's a superfood? A superfood is a made-up marketing construct designed (laughs) to get people to pay more money for fruits and veg that have some kind of sexy backstory about the people who ate them in ancient times. Superfoods are a scam. Yeah, I thought the answer might be something along those lines. Can you talk a little bit more about why it's such a scam and why it's particularly a marketing tool? They're all very nutritious foods, but they're no more nutritious than your bog standard fruits and vegetables that you'd normally buy for much less money. But they all come with this beautiful backstory about the Aztecs or the Incas or, you know, some other beautiful sounding ancient population, how they ate them. And, you know, they give people this extra sense of worth in fruits and veg. I don't hate them because if they get people who wouldn't eat fruits and veg to eat them, great. But also what we see is that it psychs people out from eating well. So it makes people think that you need a lot of money to access superfoods. And it's kind of taken the gloss off your bog standard regular everyday run of the mill fruit and veg. And that can be a problem. Right. So on the one hand, it can motivate people to eat fruit and veg if they wouldn't otherwise. The biggest risk is that normal fruit and veg feel like an inferior good all of a sudden. Yeah, and what we're doing is motivating the rich people who can afford superfoods and demotivating the people who can't. And lo and behold, the people who can't afford superfoods are often ones who can't afford as healthy food anyway, and therefore could probably do without being demotivated entirely to eat fruit and veg. Exactly. And there's so much polarization in what people think is healthy. And people have these weird ideas. We did a survey recently where we asked people to rate the healthfulness of different fruits and veg. And everyone thought corn was bad for you. They thought corn was an unhealthy option. And when you ask people why they don't think corn's healthy, they say it's because we can't digest it. And yet everyone says celery is you know, calorie negative because we can't digest it and everyone should eat it when they're on a diet. So I don't understand how that logic's played out. But really any fruit and veg are good fruit and veg and just eat more of them. Did you run the variable of it being green? Is there an idea that like green equals healthy? That is a very good point. Yes, green definitely is associated with healthy and definitely with the whole green smoothie, green superfood trend. And even to the point where people think green packaging means what's inside the packet is healthier. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, yellow. There's something dubious about yellow, I have to say. I think if I was on that survey, I'd also be raising my eyebrows at corn as relative to celery. I guess it just looks too fun. (laughs) Yeah, it looks too much fun. It's interesting though with food because everyone eats it, right? So it's funny that in some ways that there isn't more consensus at this point about what is healthy. There's big consensus on other particular things that don't apply to very many people at all. But when it comes to food, by the sounds of things, we really have confusing ideas about what's good for us. I think there's a few reasons for that. I always say that the best thing about working in nutrition is that everyone eats, but also the worst thing about working in nutrition (laughs) is everyone eats. And food is not just a tool for health. So when we study medication, for example, we can give a group of people the medication and we can give a group of people the placebo. 
We can't do that with food. You can't starve a group so that you can compare them to a group that's eating a healthy diet. And because food is so much part of our culture and because we have so many differences in our DNA, people look at nutrition research and expect us to be able to do the same things that they can do in pharmacological research. And I could do that if you made me the dictator of three or four small countries and gave <laughs> me the GDP of three or four large countries. So, you know, it's really hard. You can't do that ideal project, that ideal study in nutrition because people are complicated, because we eat every day and because there's so much diversity in what we eat. And, you know, there's just so many variables in people's lives. It's very hard to isolate the effects of health when people have different jobs. Different exposures. And this is one of the things we study as well. Things like how your different sun exposure is going to change your nutritional epigenetics or change your actual nutrition status. And people don't think of those kinds of things. So you need very large populations over very large periods of time to really drill down to diet and what it's doing. But no one eats the same thing over the course of their life. So I said before I was vegetarian from when I was 14 or 15. When I was 33, I quit being vegetarian. So there's now very little utility in saying what my vegetarian diet did for my overall health. But what I ate when I was a teenager does link to my disease risk in later life. So it is really hard to tease those things out. And people need to start accepting a little bit of fuzziness when it comes to nutrition recommendations, because we are all different and the science is much harder than any other science. I ask this slightly, hopefully. As someone who's vegetarian, what are the health implications, if you can answer it in a vacuum, of being a vegetarian who, for argument's sake, as opposed to what bears out in reality here, eats well versus someone who eats occasional meats? Yeah, so it is difficult. So there's good vegetarians and there's bad vegetarians, just like there's good omnivores and bad omnivores. <laughs> and, you know, you could be completely vegan. You could eat a completely plant-based diet that only consisted of potato chips and French fries and crisps and, you know, I know, I know the processed <laughs> foods. So really it comes down to the overall quality of the diet. What the benefit of vegetarianism does is it makes it easier to get those vegetables in. But really there's very limited evidence that there is any benefit of going fully vegetarian or fully vegan above and beyond eating meat in a moderate way. So if you follow the recommendations and eat meat in moderation, eat a variety of meat, eat fish, eat your white meat as well as your red meat, only eat it in the portion sizes that are recommended. If you do that, there's no real added benefit to cutting out meat entirely. The biggest problem is most of us who eat meat eat too much of it and we eat the same ones over and over again and get too much fat from it. Okay, that's really interesting because if you look at the evolution, and jump in if I stray here, the evolutionary history of meat, us eating meat, is that we'd occasionally find it or semi-occasionally find it, and it was a treat. It was nice. You know, I grew up, my parents are from Cape Town, so I grew up eating steak for breakfast every morning. And I'm sure that doesn't even resemble, and not to fetchize the cavemen superfoods thing, but I'm sure that doesn't resemble anything that happens pre, you know, 2000 years ago. And therefore it's unhealthy. Is that the right line of thought? The problem with bringing evolution into dietary practice is that when these evolutionary pressures occurred, we didn't live long lives. 
So evolution and, you know, this natural selection of passing on the particular genes all centered around reproduction. And we weren't living past that peak, you know, 35, 40 reproductive age. So what would have been good for someone then is not going to be what's good for us now if we're aiming to live to 70 or 80 or 90. So that's the first complication. And then the second complication is we evolved in a very different food environment. So we used to have, as you said, this kind of feast and famine. We'd eat a lot of something, we'd eat nothing. And that's really a problem now when we have the adaptations for that, but we're living in an environment where food is plentiful and we can access it whenever we like. And it's a nasty trick that our bodies play on us because of evolution, that those high energy foods, the ones that have all those calories and kilojoules in them, they're the tastiest because evolution wanted to encourage us to eat more of those high energy foods and the vegetables and the fruits that are good for us aren't as tasty because those plants didn't want us to eat them. So they evolved to have these compounds to deter us from eating them. So that's a really nasty trick of evolution that we all really need to fight against every day when making our dietary choices. That's so interesting. Just on that natural selection point and the fact that we only lived until 30 odds, is the idea here that actually whatever the selection pressures were at the time might have been brilliant for getting us to the threshold of 40 so we could reproduce. But who knows what they would do to us age 50? You know, they might be crippling us physiologically past that point. Evolution doesn't care about old people. Evolution cares about reproductive age people and getting to that point and getting to that point successfully. Oh my God, they're like the mainstream media. That that is a very very astute take. Um, I do know I'm anthropomorphizing evolution here. The evolution obviously had no intent. No one write in and tell me that. I know, but it's an easy way to talk about it. But yeah, evolution, mainstream media. I like it. Well, Emma, listen, thank you so much. That was really fun. I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate your time. Is there anywhere that everyone can check you out? I'm all over the internet. I really love Twitter. I'm at Synapse101 on Twitter. I really like the conversations that you can get going on what you can learn from other people on Twitter. So if you're on that platform, find me there. I'm on Instagram, underscore Emmy101, and Dr. Emma Beckett on Facebook. I unfortunately grew all these platforms very organically and did not think of making all my handles the same. Sorry. Well, with that apology, very, very unnecessary. Thank you so much for being here. And everyone, thank you for listening. It's really cool to be back. I know it's only been two weeks off, but we enjoy doing these things. All right, I'll see you next week.